I'm just talking, just talking, just talking, just talking. Welcome back into the book room. My name is John Deegan. So I've been away for a while on book-related business that unfortunately did not give me opportunity to record any episodes. Sometimes that happens. A lot of the work I do sadly takes place behind closed doors. I can say that I had the great pleasure in early June to take in the 2019 Margaret Lawrence Lecture at the beautiful Halifax Central Library in Nova Scotia. If you haven't been to Halifax, you should definitely go. It's a gorgeous little city right on the Atlantic Ocean, fantastic seafood. And that library building, the new one, is a sight to see. The Margaret Lawrence Lecture, named for one of the founding members of the Writers' Union of Canada and one of Canada's most successful early homegrown novelists, takes place every year at the Writers' Union's annual general meeting. And this year, as I mentioned, it was in Halifax. Sponsored and administered since 1987 by our wonderful colleagues at the Writers' Trust of Canada, the lecture focuses thematically on the life of the writer. So it invites lecturers to look back on their own development as a writer and to share any insights they've gathered about their own work and about the job of writing. This year's lecturer was the delightful Olive Senior, a multi-award-winning author of fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and children's works. I would introduce you to Olive myself. I've known her for a quarter century or so, but author Eric and Otam, the outgoing chair of the Writers' Union, did such a marvelous job at the lecture itself. I thought I'd just play a bit of that. So here goes. Olive Senior. To tell you about her list of accomplishments, it would take me more time than I've been allotted for this short introduction. So here's the Coles notes. Born and raised in Jamaica, educated in Jamaica and Canada, a journalist, a historian, an editor, a publisher, a poet, a novelist, a short story writer, a children's book author. She's completed 18 works and counting, I, sh I might add. Her awards and accolades are as numerous. Here's just a sampling. Commonwealth Writers' Prize for her first book, Summer Lightning. OCM Bocas Award for Caribbean Literature in 2015 for her nonfiction work, Dying to Better Themselves, West Indians and the Building of the pa Panama Canal. The next year, she won the same, same prize for her short story collection, The Pain Tree. Her poetry book, Over the Roofs of the World, was a finalist for the Governor General's Award in Canada. She's won the Norman Washington Manley Foundation Award for Excellence for her work documenting Jamaican uh, heritage and culture. She won the Gold Medal Institute, uh, Gold Medal of the Institute of Jamaica, and has an honorary do uh, doctorate from the University of West Indies. And there's more, of course. All of it truly embodies the writer's life. What a breathtaking professional arc. Documenting the past through her nonfiction, giving meaning to the present through her poetry and prose, and inspiring the future through her teaching and child children's literature. In her fiction, Olive compellingly synthesizes the grand arcs of history, a visceral sense of people and place, and a raw emotion, and the raw emotion of the human paradox. In reading The Pain Tree recently, I felt an authenticity and intensity in her prose. Reviewing another one of Olive's novels, the, a critic in the Literary Review of Canada wrote, never before has her depiction of the Jamaican dilemma felt so painfully intimate. Indeed, I've never been to Jamaica, 
but I was struck by how much the stories in the pain tree resonated with me despite the geography, culture, and generation that separates us. Olive once told an interviewer, quote, we are not newly minted and fashionably multicultural. We've been the, mel- we've been the meeting ground uh, from the earliest history, the coming together of peoples and their cultural baggage from all over the world. She was speaking out her, about her book, The Encyclopedia of Jamaican Heritage, but she could equally have been speaking about Canada. That's what's really so powerful about her writing, its ability to emotionally resonate and to penetrate to the universal truths rooting the human condition. All of it is also a traveler. And so I'm looking forward to the journey she'll be taking us on tonight. Without further ado, Olive Senior. Thank you. Just a little tease of Olive's voice there, but I'm not going to play the entire lecture for you because it's available already as its own podcast through the Writers Trust of Canada. So just search them out on SoundCloud, the Writers Trust of Canada, and you'll see Olive's lecture right there. It's about uh, 40 minutes in length. It's filled with her beautiful insights about how the writer digs in the soil of their personal ground to unearth stories for the rest of us. So yes, I was off in Halifax for a while, and then back to Toronto and my main job, which these days tends to be continuing the seemingly never-ending policy conversation about writers' rights and incomes, the dreaded copyright review. You may recall the last episode featured news about a progressive and encouraging report from the federal government's Heritage Committee. The Heritage Report delivered 22 recommendations, all aimed at strengthening the legal and economic position of Canada's authors and artists, including repairing the huge economic damage caused by out-of-control, free educational copying of published material. It was the kind of good news that in this business tends to make one wonder when the bad news is coming. Well, we didn't have to wait too long. A report from the Federal Industry Committee followed soon after the Heritage Report, and it delivered a number of recommendations directly contradicting those of Canadian Heritage. Most disappointing for Canada's professional authors, the Industry Committee completely passed the buck on fixing the educational copying crisis in Canada, recommending instead to push the issue three or so more years down the road. As Kurt Vonnegut was fond of saying, so it goes. The conversation, some might call it an argument, others a full-on battle around authors' rights in Canada continues, and rest assured, we fight on. Which brings me to the main topic for today, the sometimes mysterious difference between the world of commercial authorship and the world of academic authorship, and what that means in this fight for authors' rights. You see, one of the great frustrations in this fight is that often those appearing to lobby the hardest to weaken the rights of authors are also authors themselves. They just happen to be authors whose work is conducted outside the commercial realities of the marketplace for books. They're academics. In Canada, for instance, while all authors and groups aligned with the commerce of bookmaking and selling trundled off to Ottawa during the copyright review to ask for stronger protections from copying, academic groups, 
such as the Canadian Association of University Teachers, or CAUT, whose members regularly write and publish in academic journals and books, well, they plunked themselves down at committee and asked for weaker controls on copying. I recently read a fascinating blog post from historian Eileen Fife on the London School of Economics and Political Science website. The posting is called, What the History of Copyright in Academic Publishing Tells Us About Open Research. And I will do my damnedest to make sure a link to the posting is in the intro text for this episode because I encourage you to read it. And here I should quickly thank my colleague James McConaughey, editor of the Author magazine in the UK, for pointing me to Eileen Fife's posting. On the surface, it's a baffling paradox. How could people whose careers depend in great part on their ability to publish their own writing not want that work protected? not want the economic value of that work preserved? The answer as uncovered and observed by Dr. Fife is, and here I quote, academic authors do not depend upon copyright for their livelihoods. To understand why that is, Dr. Fife takes us all the way back to the 18th century in England to the very early academic journal, The Philosophical Transactions. Lovely name, The Philosophical Transactions. As she writes, Authors who presented a paper to the Royal Society in, say, the 1780s were understood to be giving the society a present. There was no exchange of money, but the society acquired an ownership claim on both the physical manuscript and the findings it contained. In return, authors gained social capital, or prestige, as the society's processes ensured that their discoveries were recorded, dated, and attributed to them. The society paid the costs of publishing papers in the transactions, and there was no expectation that sales would generate a profit for either publisher or author. So essentially what she's saying, if I understand it correctly, is that academic publishing was not for profit strictly, but authors were generously compensated in other ways that somehow translated into a livelihood. Fast forward to today, in Canada, and groups like CAUT seem to suggest we still have an academic class who consider their work to be, in some way, a present to the academy. I find this a very odd position for a labor representative like CAUT to take, being okay with what is essentially free labor demanded by the bosses. And yet, academic authors still regularly sign away their copyright to journal and book publishers, and seemingly have no expectation of royalty return. It's an arrangement that makes zero sense to the commercial author whose livelihood absolutely does depend on the sale of their work. Now, clearly, there must be some economic quid pro quo for the academic author. A full-time job, maybe, at a good salary, uh, a certain level of career security, perhaps tenure even, tenure, that somewhat magical job-for-life scenario that the rest of us can't even imagine, let alone aspire to. Strangely, the two sets of authors, the commercial and the academic, have been positioned as at odds with each other in the copyright battles. I think this is a false conflict, and one that only really serves the divide-and-conquer strategy of those who want as much free stuff as they can grab, and their baffling enablers, like CAUT. I say it's false, because the vast majority of academic authors I've spoken with on the subject do not agree with CAUT's position on copyright and are in fact quite interested in being fairly compensated through royalty payments. 
the academic quid pro quo mentioned before, full-time job, good salary, career security, how's that working out for the average university teacher these days? And now, on top of all of that, teachers are going to be asked to generate and create content for free open access publication with no expectation of compensation? I just don't see how that helps anyone who is working for a living. It seems to me there's a simple solution to this false divide of authorship. All authors should retain their rights in both commercial and academic contexts. The age of truly not-for-profit publication that still supports authors is long gone. There should always be a royalty expectation when licensing your work for the use of others. Now, the details of these arrangements are, of course, negotiable. That's a topic for another day. Contracts, don't get me started. So, sure, if the Academy is ready to actually tie compensation directly to academic publishing in a real, sustainable way, they can maybe negotiate deals that provide for robust copying. But at least in that scenario, the players remain clear, and academic authors are not forced into the false and compromising position of giving presents to their employers. Thanks for listening. Be sure and read the original blog posting on the London School of Economics and Political Science site. The author, again, is Dr. Eileen Fife. Excellent piece. You can access this podcast on either SoundCloud, Radio Public, Stitcher, the Apple Podcasts app, or the Google Podcasts app. You can find individual episodes through my own website at jkdeacon.com. I can be reached on Twitter at bookroompod or by email at bookroom14 at yahoo.com. Thanks as always to Sandy Crawley for the music. We'll talk again soon. I'm just talking, just talking, just talking, just talking.